exile in Babylon. And just to recap, because some of you probably weren't here last week, and if you don't know, the, the God's people, the Jews, uh, they've been split in two. They've been sort of been split into a northern kingdom in, and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom are carried off into exile by the Assyrians. And then later on, and that's most of the tribes, that's ten of the tribes actually, then later on, the southern kingdom, which is the remaining two tribes, mainly Jerusalem, are taken into exile in Babylon. And the king there is this emperor called Nebuchadnezzar. And he figures the main protagonists in the chapter we're doing today, which is chapter two of Daniel, are Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Those are the two main characters. So we're looking at it, it's called, where do we find true truth to interpret the world? Because truth has become a kind of commodity that people talk about, they sell, they put out on their, their social media pages and so on, and they peddle truth, what they claim to be truth. In, in all of that, where do we find real, actual truth to interpret the world? And this is a talk that falls into two halves, it's a kind of game in two halves. Did anybody see the Champions League final last night? Yeah, a few people did. Yeah, I ended up in a, a real dive down by the Hippodrome called the Drawbridge, but that's a different story to watch it. Such was my enthusiasm, and I did wonder afterwards whether I should have done. Anyway, this is a, this is a sermon in two halves. The first half is we're going to go through this chapter quickly and find out what happens in Daniel chapter 2. And then the second half, we're going to ask, what, what does it mean to us? Does it say anything to us? Specifically, where do we find true truth to interpret the world? So, let's just go through it. Daniel chapter 2. So, in the second year of his reign, this emperor, this king, Nebuchadnezzar, had dreams. And his mind was troubled, and he couldn't sleep. So the king summoned his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he dreamed. When they came in and they stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. And they said, may the king live forever. Tell, tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. You suspect that um, Nebuchadnezzar, like all despots and people with absolute power, is kind of experiencing the kind of paranoia that they all eventually experience. And he's got to this point and he's becoming a bit unstable because it soon turns a bit nastier for these, for these advisors the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me what the dream is and explain it, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. So we get threats and bribery at one and the same time. But then it gets even more problematic for these people because the king seems to have outbursts of anger. He's becoming rather unpredictable. And he starts to accuse his wise men of conspiring against him and accusing them of deception. He goes on to say, I'm certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. And the astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth 
who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live with, among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Because Daniel and his friends, they're kind of the, the, sort of the elite people from Israel, and some of the elite people from Israel have been made into advisors and sort of top civil servants, if you like, in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. So they're included in this kind of group of people who are going to be executed. And Daniel finds out what's about to happen, but with great tact, and this is important, with great tact, he goes into the king's presence. He's obviously respected by the king, and he pleads for some extra time that he might interpret the dream. And then what does he do? He immediately goes to his Jewish friends and he asks them to pray about the situation, to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And there is an answer to the prayer. This group of people plead for mercy. And Daniel has this vision at night which both reveals the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and what it means. So it's a win-win. And this is great storytelling, isn't it? The way it's kind of the narrative is unfolded for us. Because we still don't know what was in the dream, do we? This is the amazing thing. We don't know what the dream is all about yet. We're dying to find out, kind of on the edge of our seats. But there's another kind of slight, slight delay in our being informed what the content of the dream was. Because Daniel goes back to the king at this point, and he steps out in faith, and he says, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. It's impossible, just as your astrologers have said. It's impossible to do this. But, Daniel says, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. So finally, at last, we're told what was in the dream. Your majesty looked, Daniel says, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms were of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands, it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar must have been reeling by now given that Daniel, this, this mere exile from Judah, has actually told him what the content of his dream was. But Daniel doesn't stop here because he also interprets the dream. And in summary, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that the statue represents four kingdoms, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And he outlines this. 
We won't do it all now because it's just there's tons of detail. But then comes the killer blow because the, the deep meaning at the heart of the dream or this, the deep interpretation of this dream, Daniel also goes on to explain. He says, in the time of those kings, the four kingdoms that he's been telling the king about, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. So that's the kind of the deep interpretation. And then we're told that Nebuchadnezzar kind of prostrates itself, himself at Daniel's feet and acknowledges Daniel's God, the living, true God. And he makes Daniel kind of first minister or chief honcho, the, the head civil servant or something like that. So that's, that's what kind of happens. But what can we learn from it? So we're in the second half now. We've had our half time. We've had our, the interval or whatever. What can we learn from this? Where do we find true truth to interpret the world? Um, because many, in many ways, we too are in exile. We Christians are in exile. Because the values of the world around us are different to Jesus' values and his way. And yet, at the same time, we are embedded in this world. And we're embedded in this culture. And we can't pretend otherwise, because most of us are not called to separate ourselves from the world. There are a few people who, through history, are called to separate themselves from the world and pray, have that kind of very special, special ministry. But the vast majority of us aren't in that place. We are in the world. So what do we need to know from Daniel 2? What can it teach us about where to look for wisdom and guidance in this world which sooner or later will throw something confusing at us or something which we find really hard? And in addition to that, there are many competing worldviews around, aren't there? And they all claim to offer different levels of insight. You know, they range from pure superstitions through to maybe blind faith in the power of science, something like that. They're all offering us some kind of explanation for what's going on around us. But is there objective truth out there, and can it help us? Well, there's a three-stage process in this, I think, that's revealed in this chapter, Daniel chapter 2. And we'd be wise to, to learn from it. So the first stage, Daniel's first thought is to turn to God for guidance and help when he's presented with a kind of existential threat, i.e. he's going to be executed. His first thought is to turn to God for guidance and help. Second, when God reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its meaning to Daniel, his first thought is to praise God, to praise God and to thank him for it. And then the third thing he does is to give God the glory publicly when he could have so easily taken all of that credit upon himself. But he praises God for it publicly. That's his first thing. So in a world that doesn't acknowledge God and Jesus, his son, turn to God for truth. Second, praise God when you do receive some kind of truth from him. And third, give him credit publicly. Don't be afraid to tell people. We're just going to unpack those three things. 
So, Daniel's life is on the line. Materially, he has nothing. He is an exile, remember. He has no real security. He's only alive because Nebuchadnezzar tolerates him and has given him and his friends these positions of, of responsibility. But that can change in the blink of an eye, as we've learned. So Daniel's approach in this crisis, as we've seen, is to turn to prayer and to turn to God from the outset, to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. He doesn't turn to God as a last resort, because so often we turn to God, don't we, almost as a last resort, when we're not getting very far. We start with our own ingenuity and our own ability to problem-solve, but when that doesn't help, perhaps we turn to God. And I think for some of us, this is instinctive. You know, we've been brought up, maybe. We've been taught our kind of education has taught us to use our talents to get ourselves out of the hole. And this can be a stubbornness thing. It can be a pride thing. I mean, at the most basic level, put your hand up if you've ever been lost, you're driving around, but you've refused to ask somebody directions who's there walking next to you. I think there's a few people, and it's not just the men, I'm glad to see. A number of times I've been driving around and Penny next to me sort of says, stop the car, ask that person. And of course I drive even faster then so that she can't possibly get the window and ask them directions. We're just, we're just kind of imbued with this sense that we've got to stubbornly get ourselves out of the hole. And I'm not saying, and I don't think the Bible is ever saying, that we switch off our brains at this stage and abandon the gifts that we've been given by God. That's not what we're, we're doing here. Rather, we, we offer our gifts to God. God wants us to use our gifts and our personality in a given situation. And we're told in this chapter of Daniel that he used wisdom and tact when he got permission, when he got a kind of bit of extra time, a stay of execution, literally. to He got permission from Nebuchadnezzar and he approached the king. And that was Daniel using his natural people skills. This is not superficial confidence, but this is prudence, and he, he knew how to do that. And he put it at God's disposal. And he, but then he asked his friends to pray. That was the thing he did, to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. And we know what happens. God reveals the content and the meaning of the dream. And this was all because Daniel went to God for truth. So that's the first thing, go to God. The second thing is that he gives God, give, gives God credit and he praises God in providing an answer. And it's in the middle of the night and he's on his own. And we read that he praises and thanks God spontaneously. And it's like a, a psalm of praise. He says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up, raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. And okay, maybe, you know, most of us aren't operating on that level of kind of world geopolitics. And it's going to be a more kind of modest thing that is revealed to us. And the chances are, it will be a combination of our opening our Bibles and just really asking God to show us things, and maybe praying with other people, whatever it is. But if we turn to God, that's how things are going to be revealed. And Daniel's so humble here, 
He claims no credit. He even goes on to beg that the wise men of Babylon, that they wouldn't be needlessly killed. He cares about them, even though on the face of it, they're the enemy. In fact, the answer has come just in time. He's taken to the king at once to reveal the dream and its meaning. So that's the second thing. He praises God. And then the third thing, and this is the hard bit for us. This is where the stakes are high. He gives God credit publicly, moving beyond finding truth in a way. We're moving beyond where the true truth is to what is the application of that true truth. Because God generally doesn't want us to keep it to ourselves. Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. So Daniel gives God the credit for revealing the mystery of the dream. If you want to find true truth, God will help you. He doesn't want us just to seek him and his truth. He wants us to tell others about it. And Daniel then goes on to tell the king what the dream means. And you can be sure that Nebuchadnezzar was listening at this point. He really wants to know. The huge statues made from all these impressive metals, gold and bronze and iron, but the feet are weak. Do you remember? The feet are this mixture of iron and clay. So it's all ultimately unstable and won't last. And symbolically, it's telling us that all these human-made kingdoms will come crashing down because iron and clay is inherently weak and is very brittle and can be easily smashed. The key is the stone. Remember that stone that was cut out of the mountain? In the time of those kings, the four kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and it won't be left to other, another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, Daniel says, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold to pieces. And this is symbolically, Daniel only dimly would have understood this, but symbolically, this is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the living stone, we read in the New Testament, a precious cornerstone that holds up the whole building. His kingdom of truth will never end. You find truth to interpret the world in Jesus. That's where you go. Not on QI or something on television. He even says, Jesus even says of himself, I am the way and the truth. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is where knowing the truth should lead us to share it and not treat it as some interesting intellectual abstract thing that we keep to ourselves. Because we have a gospel to share. The whole thrust of human history and Christianity, Christianity and human history interacting, is that the gospel has been shared. This is why there's a church here in Redland today, because somebody shared the gospel centuries ago. We have a gospel to share, and it stands to reason that we, like Daniel, should give God the credit for answering prayers and then tell people about that. But the thing is, how do we do that? That's the difficult thing, isn't it? How do we share the gospel, the good news of Jesus? Because all sorts of thoughts and very sensible-seeming arguments conspire, don't they, in our minds to stop us doing it. I mean, in my own life, you know, some of you will know that I have two jobs. 
Some of the time I'm kind of vicaring, and some of the time I'm writing music in the, the kind of media and television world. And it's relatively easy when I'm doing my vicaring bit to tell people about prayers being answered and how God speaks. Because people kind of expect me to do that. They maybe be surprised if I didn't. But I can tell you, in the media world, it's not so easy. It's not so easy because there, you know, firm belief in a God, any God, is treated with great suspicion. It really is. I suppose I can just about get away with talking about God in a kind of nebulous, abstract way because then God can mean anything. But if I talk about Jesus, if I mention Jesus' name, there's a kind of tumbleweed moment in the cutting room or wherever I am. A moment of embarrassment or even hackles rising. And I think there are times, the thing is, there are times when it is right to talk about Jesus, even though it can take courage, but there are times when maybe we don't talk about him we have to earn the right to talk about him so that when we do, it doesn't come out of the blue. And maybe it could be that we talk about him in the pub or the cafe and not in the office. And how do we earn that right? Well, it needs to be consistent with our character. It needs to be consistent with your character. Find out ways to normalize your faith. So you can say to somebody, what are you going to do? during the weekend of the, the Long Bank holiday, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. What are you going to do? You, oh, you're having a street party. We're going to um, have a kind of church picnic. And we're inviting people. Anybody can join us for that. And by the way, you're welcome to join us if you get bored with your street party or whatever it is. So, you know, you just need to make it natural. Daniel's willingness to talk about the living God of Israel stemmed from his belief that God is living and active, that this God listens and saves. And ultimately, we have to believe that ourselves, don't we, to want to share the gospel, the good news. And Daniel ultimately felt safe with God, even if humanly he was apparently in a really weak position. So he was able to say that God does things and that God is active and that this God is knowable. And sooner or, later, sooner or later, when we're talking about our faith with people we know, we have to do that as well. We have to kind of stop intellectualizing faith and talk about knowing God, Jesus, a savior. Talk about a relationship with him. And these, I know, I understand, these can be really difficult things to talk about. But we do have to do that eventually. Some people, maybe your work colleagues or your friends, they might think you're a bit mad at first when you do that. And I don't think most of you are mad at all. And, um, they, but they'll think that. But the thing is, if you're consistent and you try and act with integrity, then they'll get used to it and they'll come to respect you for your belief. They will. They will come and respect you. One of our lodgers, we have some lodgers in our house, and one of them, they're a really out there Christian, I can tell you. I mean, they're scary. But what they've done is, they've put it in their email. Their email is literally all about Jesus at domain.com. That's what they've done. And I tell you, when you get an email from this person, you know who it's from. That's a really good move, I think. I think that's the kind of thing that really marks our faith as being different to all the other worldviews. And it's that that really 
offers people tangible hope that we have this relationship with a God who can be known and a God who came to earth as Jesus. That's the thing. And in the end, it's not going to be an intellectual idea, although that's really important, that sways people. It's the fact that you consistently seem to have this relationship which is changing things in your life. And it's that that confounds the wise and the skeptics and the cynics. And I think we should just pray about that for a few minutes because it's something we're, we're all in this position, aren't we? So let's just, um, let's just be silent and maybe, maybe hold out a hand as just a way of symbolizing the fact that you want, you want to be better at sharing your faith Jesus, our Lord, we come here on Sundays. As Christians, we do other things. We do small groups, home groups, or whatever it is. But we ask the Holy Spirit that you promised to come alongside us, to, to be there in those moments, to help us to discern when to tell others about you, and to tell others that you are the truth. Gently and in a non-confrontational way to say that we believe there is such a thing as truth and that you are the personification of ultimate truth. stay in this place of just seeking the presence of Jesus. Come Lord, come and just meet with us now. We need you. We are hungry for you in this place.